the rest of us, let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you are new with us this morning, uh, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark since about September, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 6. We're looking at verses 30 to 52 this morning, and my encouragement to you uh, would be that you always bring your Bible or some sort of copy of the Scripture with you uh, to church. (laughs) Seems like a reasonable place to bring your Bible. Um, But uh, it would be helpful, just as we're going through these stories, to track along so that you're not just uh, listening to me, but that um, we're making sure that that we're looking at God's Word together. Uh, I want us to, to think in our minds, we looked last week at King Herod and the feast that he threw... What a piece of work he was. Uh, the, the feast that he threw in his pride and bombasticness, all about himself. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, Mark is contrasting King Herod with King Jesus. And the sort of feast that he throws, not out of, comp- not out of a pride, but out of compassion. So let me read these verses for us, starting in verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. 
But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Father, help us to see the glory of Jesus as we look at this account. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, There's a saying that goes uh, something like this, that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. God has given us 66 wonderful books that we should be good students of so that we can know him, love him, and ultimately walk in his truth. And in order to have a good understanding of the New Testament, it helps if we have a good comprehension of the Old Testament. And in order to have a good understanding of the Old Testament, we should have a good comprehension of the New Testament. And the entire Bible, when we read it, we realize that it has one central theme. The central theme of the entire Bible is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is one unified story pointing us to Jesus. And to read the Bible without having Jesus as the focal point is a little bit like trying to put a puzzle together with all the pieces upside down. Uh, You can do it. I wouldn't recommend it. It would be very difficult. And by the time that you're done putting the puzzle together, you won't get really much appreciation for the beauty that the different pieces are trying to show you. But when Jesus becomes the center point, he flips the puzzle of the Bible right side up, as it were, so that we can see all the pieces were coming together to show this wonderful portrait of who Jesus is. Now, why in the world do I start that way? Jesus, in this text, is showing that he does the same things that God in the Old Testament did. In fact, he's really trying to reveal to us that he, Jesus, is the God of the Old Testament. He is showing that God is ultimately seeking to reveal himself finally and fully in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to enter into relationship with us in and through Jesus. This morning, I want us to see all the wonderful Old Testament pictures that are popping up uh, through the the account of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And as we get into this text, the first Old Testament picture that I want us to have in our minds is this. I want us to think about the God who calls himself the shepherd of Israel, who out of compassion for his people leads them into a land of rest and all along the way imparts his word to them. With that picture in mind, Let's look at the beginning of the text where we see Jesus showing us to be the shepherd God. How does the story start? Do you remember where we left the apostles last time we saw them? Jesus had sent them out on a short-term missions trip. And now in verse 30, they're back. Take a look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus 
and told him all that they had done and taught. Uh, do you know what it's like when you get back from a missions trip? There are really two things that are always kind of going on. Number one, you're just really excited and you want to tell everybody all the experiences you had. But on the other hand, you're also just crazy tired and you just want to hit the sack and not see anyone for about a week until you get all your sleep back. And that's really what's happening with the disciples. They're excited. They want to tell Jesus all that they've done. But Jesus also recognizes, my guys need some sleep. And so in verse 31, he tells them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Many had been coming and going. They didn't even have leisure to eat. And so they get on the boat, verse 32, to a desolate place uh, to go to themselves. We could say that the Lord here is their shepherd. He makes them lie down in green pastures, leads them beside still waters to restore their souls. I think there's encouragement here for those who serve Jesus faithfully. You, you give him your all day by day by day. And sometimes you just wonder, does he take notice? Not that we're looking, not that we're self-serving or that we want some kind of badge of honor, but it would be kind of nice just to know that Jesus does notice the things that we do for him. And here, Jesus is showing us through his disciples that he always recognizes a job well done. And he knows when we need rest. I love that Psalm 23 doesn't say, he lets me lie down in green pastures. What does it say? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He knows when we're running too fast, too far. And like toddlers, sometimes Jesus, Jesus just needs to look at us disciples and say, it's nap time. It's nap time. And that's what he does here. Well, Jesus' intention for rest is sincere, but it never quite comes to pass. Because take a look at verse 33. <laughs> verse 33 Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It appears that their boat was visible from the land, and everyone said, oh, he's going over there. We should go, and we should meet him, so that when we get there, we get front row seats, and, uh, and we, can, we, can, we can get more of Jesus. Do you think the disciples maybe were a little bit annoyed uh, to show up on the crowd? They've just been promised a good nap, and now here they are. Imagine going on a vacation after a long season of work. You can't wait. You finally get off the plane. You get to your vacation spot, and all your clients are meeting you there, <laughs> excited to, for you to do work for them. I don't think the disciples would have been too happy with the crowd. But how does Jesus feel about the crowd when he sees them? Take a look at verse 34. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at this crowd. The disciples see the crowd as a nuisance, most likely. Jesus looks at the crowd, and he has compassion. He sees them like they are sheep without a shepherd. Now, if that picture doesn't resonate with us, Imagine how, how you would feel, for instance, if, uh, if you were going down 272 in the morning when there's a lot of traffic and you saw a puppy loose off its leash just running around uh, on, on the highway in the middle of the morning traffic, what would you feel for that puppy in that moment? Compassion. 
Jesus looks at this crowd like a puppy let loose on 272 in the morning, uh, morning commute. In fact, the, the word that is used here for compassion is that funny Greek word that we looked at a long time ago. Do you remember that word, splonknitsomai? Do you remember that? Uh, this is the word used here. It's the, it's the word that is used only in reference to Jesus in the New Testament for the feeling that he has towards sufferers and sinners. It's a word that, 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 that is, uh, literally means the twisting of the bowels. It's a, it's a violent churning of love, compassion. And this is what he feels for these people. And what does his compassion lead him to do for this crowd? Take again a good look at uh, 34 again, verse 34. In his compassion, what does it lead him to do? He began to teach them, to teach them many things. When Jesus looks on us, his compassion leads him, his shepherding care leads him to give us his word, to instruct us. That is how Jesus cares for uh, sinners and sufferers, by ultimately leading them into the truth of God. Some of us here this morning, we may think to ourselves, why is it that I don't feel the tenderness of my relationship with Jesus? Why do I feel so disconnected? Or could it be because we are neglecting the word that in his compassion he so desperately wants to turn us to? That the ultimate care that he wants to give us is the care that he has for us, the instruction and wisdom that he has for us in this book. It's how we receive the shepherding care of Jesus. And it's how we impart shepherding care to others. That we haven't really gone as far as we can in helping others until we've ultimately opened up the scriptures and told them who they are, who God has created them to be, and that he has ultimately created them. Uh, for himself. Jesus is showing that he is the shepherd God. He leads his disciples to places of rest and in compassion. He gives us his word. Well, that's the first Old Testament picture. What about the second Old Testament picture? I want us to think now in our minds of God with Israel in the wilderness, just like we read in Exodus 16 a moment ago. And Israel is grumbling because their tummies are hungry. And what does God do? In his grace, he miraculously provides bread from heaven to feed the people. So much bread, in fact, that they are all stuffed to the gills. With that picture in mind, Jesus is about to show us that he is the God of wilderness manna. In verse 35, the disciples see a problem brewing. Uh, they recognize, verse 35, that the hour is late. Jesus has been talking for a very long time. He's been teaching them for a long time. His disciples come to, them, come to him and say, hey, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're out in the wilderness. This is a desolate place, and it's late. They provide a solution in verse 36. Uh, send them away to go into the surrounding country so they can go to McDonald's and buy themselves a happy meal is essentially what they're saying. I kind of have a sneaking suspicion. I could be wrong, but I, I have to wonder, are the disciples really just thinking about their own tummies at this point? Uh, because in verse 31, uh, it says that they didn't get a chance to eat. Uh, they just got back from this long, the, this short-term mission trip. They're tired. They've been promised a nap. The nap didn't happen. And now it's late and their stomachs are growling. And I just kind of have to wonder, 
You know, are they, are they saying to themselves, well, we can't tell Jesus to shut the operation down because we're hungry, but we can kind of throw it on the crowd, you know? Tell the, yeah, Jesus, I think the crowd might be hungry, yeah. I don't know, maybe. But how does Jesus reply in verse 37? He tells them, you give them something to eat. In the Greek, the emphasis is on the word you. You, guys, you give them something to eat. What is Jesus trying to do here with his disciples? I think he's trying to teach them that despite the fact that they've put in a, a hard work and that they are tired and that they are hungry, he wants them to have a servant mindset, a ministry mindset, to take responsibility for the needs that they have before them. You give them something to eat. I've been thinking about Jesus uh, saying this to the disciples here all week because how often have I prayed, uh, Lord, if you could help so-and-so in their situation. Lord, here are the needs of our church, our community, our world. Am I prepared for Jesus to say, what are you going to do about it? Are we prepared to be the answer to the needs that we place at the feet of Jesus? Well, what would be a reasonable response that the disciples should have given at this point? A reasonable response to Jesus saying, you give them something to eat, might have been something like, well, could you show us how or what would you have us do? But how do they respond? Well, they respond with a snarky mouth. They're a little bit sarcastic in verse 37. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 days worth of wages, Jesus. That's how much it would cost to feed all these people. We don't even have that kind of money. What do you mean? Are we supposed to? Uh, there's 5,000 men, not even to mention the, the women and the children who are here as well. Not a great response. So what does Jesus say? Verse 38, guys, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. What do you have on hand? What has God already put before you? Have, you? have you looked? Have you looked around at what God might already have here among this crowd? And so they go and they check it out, and it's not much. They say, we have five loaves and two fish. Not great, but just enough for Jesus to do something amazing with. So what does he do? Just like Moses divided the people in the wilderness up into groups of hundreds and fifties, Jesus commands all the people to sit down in groups. Verse 40, he uh, disperses them in groups of hundreds and fifties. He takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied, and they got to take a doggy bag home too. Verse 43, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. We could say that he prepared a table before them, and their cup runneth over. 
Now, some people who don't want to acknowledge the supernatural activity that's happening in this passage interpret it to say, well, the, the great moral of the story is sharing. That the crowd uh, must have heard about Jesus' message. He must have been teaching them about unity and, and loving one another. And so they all rose to the occasion and they, they took these five loaves and two fish and they made sure everyone got a little bite, you know? Uh, we know that that's ridiculous. This is a miracle. This is a miracle multiplication that Jesus has done here. And what's the point of the miracle? Jesus is showing that by his power, he can make abundance and fruitfulness spring forth from utter barrenness. He can take our inadequacy, our emptiness, and display his power through it to multiply it to the blessing of many. We all have experienced how Jesus has done this in our lives in different ways, haven't we? I remember when my wife and I were diagnosed with infertility, and then we had a miscarriage. And I remember saying to Jesus many times, Lord, here's our broken hearts. Here's our barrenness. We've got nothing. But with you, maybe you could multiply this in some way. Maybe you could bless this and show your power with our emptiness. That led us to an adoption. Now here we are watching God redeem our barrenness. And we're thinking about missions this month, aren't we? How does Jesus want to multiply us as just little old Grace Church? Here we are, we're about 300 people and we're all together. All different skill sets, all different personalities, but all of us are pretty ordinary people. But what makes it so powerful is that we are ordinary people who have been given over to the use of Jesus. And when we hand ourselves over to him in all of our emptiness, all in our inadequacy, watch what he'll do. He is the God of wilderness manna. Well, Jesus does something interesting in verse 45. In verse 45, it says he, uh, he, made, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a forceful action that Jesus is doing here. It's not just, hey, guys, you know, if you want to get in the boat and, and go, I'll meet you over there. This is a, the, 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 the word made is like, I'm telling you, get in the boat and go. It's time to go. Why? Why is Jesus so urgent that the disciples leave? Well, Mark isn't clear about why that is, but John's gospel helps us out a little bit. When John is speaking on this account, in John 6, 13, he tells us what the crowd was seeking to do. Uh, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knows it's not yet his time to make his identity fully known, and he's not going to become their king by force. He will do it on his own time and be understood fully in his own way. And he doesn't want his disciples getting wrapped up, most likely, in the idea of what the crowd has going on here as well. And so he tells them to get on and go. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, just like Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God after God had brought the manna. Now Jesus, after providing the manna, is going up the mountain to get some alone time with the Father. In verse 46, taking leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. There's a beautiful picture here because as he's praying, 
what does the text say his focus is on? Take a look at verse 48. He's looking down at his disciples. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. I love this. As Jesus is praying, he's got one eye on his father. He's got another eye on his people. He ever lives to make intercession for his own. There's another Old Testament picture that I want us to have in our minds as we think about this. I want you to think about God's relationship with Job. Do you remember Job? Uh, He was an upright and godly man, and God sent a trial into his life. And for reasons that we don't, can't fully understand, he lets Job stew in his trial for quite a long time before he finally reveals himself to Job and, and shows him his glory as the great I am. As you have that picture in your mind, well, let's take a look at the last part of this text where Jesus shows us that he is the great I am. Verse 45, by now it's nighttime. And the disciples have been out on their boat for hours. Why? Because they were stuck in a windstorm. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been kayaking or canoeing. I remember we, and when I was in Scouts, we did a 75-mile trip in Beset, Manitoba in Canada. And the days, I was like 75 pounds soaking wet back then. I wasn't much help in, in rowing the canoe forward. And I'm sure that I was just everyone's favorite pride and joy on the days when the wind was against us because I didn't have any strength to to help. And I remember thinking, you know, we'd have like 10 miles or more to do a day. And when the wind was against you, you'd be looking at the trees beside you and realizing you're not really going anywhere. Uh, You're not making any progress no matter how hard you paddled. And this is even worse. Uh, The disciples are stuck in in a... it's a bad storm. It's a bad windstorm that they're facing. Think about what the disciples are probably thinking at this point. Why did Jesus send us away? I thought he told us that we were going to have nap time. Why couldn't we have stayed on the shore and just camped out for the night? Why was he so insistent, now here we are, we're stuck? Well, when Job was in the midst of his trial, he said something that we should probably know about. In Job 9, in verses 8 and 11, when he couldn't see God, he said this about God. He said, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Just like Job could not see The disciples are about to witness the God who walks on the waters pass them by. And when he does, they aren't going to recognize him. Take a look at it. In verse uh, 48, Jesus lets them stew in the midst of their storm, just like God let Job stew. He waits, I love this, he waits until the fourth watch of the night, that's about 3 a.m., I kind of like that, Jesus up on the mountain looking down at them in the storm. Those chumps, you know. For hours, he does this. And then about three o'clock comes around, he says, it's time. At the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. 
the God who walks on the waves walks by, and they do not perceive him. But Jesus reveals his ultimate identity. Verse 50, immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, unfortunately, our English translations don't help us to see the nuance of what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. But when he says, it is I, in the Greek, it sounds a whole lot like, I am who I am. Jesus is helping his disciples to see, I am the God who Job saw. I am the God who alone can walk on the waves. I am Yahweh, the God that your fathers worshipped. I am who I am. Jesus is the great I am. Wrapping this up, I think the text asks us a question. This Jesus, is he your God? Is he your God? As we wrap up, I want us to notice two important things from verse 51 and verse 52. First of all, verse 51, when did the storm finally cease for the disciples? It was when he got into the boat with them, and not until then, that the storm that they were facing ceased. Not until Jesus came into close proximity, until he came into fellowship with them again, until he visited them and got into the boat were they finally safe. If I can ask it in this way, has Jesus yet to come into your boat? Have, have you been visited by him? Have you been brought into intimate fellowship with him? And if not, you're still in the raging storms of your life. We will not experience peace and security until we find it in this God who walks on the waves. And something else that should sober us is that the disciples didn't quite get it, did they? Again, verse 51, the disciples were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When the glory of Jesus was revealed to them, it went over their heads because they weren't even able to see the sign that he had just done before in the multiplication of the loaves. They weren't able to see what he, that he, Jesus was ultimately pointing them to, that he is the great I am. He is God. Some of us this morning, we're still looking at God with the puzzle upside down as it were. And we need Jesus this morning to flip the puzzle right side up to help us see, oh, this is the God that I am to look to, the God who is Jesus Christ, the God who alone I can find peace and security. The disciples did not understand about the loaves. Do we understand this morning about the cross? Have we understood the resurrection? Have we seen him revealing his glory to us through the cross where he became the great sacrifice provided by God, taking on our sins so that we might be reconciled to him? Have we looked at the empty tomb and seen his glory there as he conquered death itself so that our death may be passed through the other side coming alive, having resurrection life ourselves because of what 
he has done, experiencing newness of life in and through him? Or are we still looking at the puzzle upside down? Have you seen his glory? And have you understood? Friends, Jesus is the God who is shepherding Grace Church. He's promised that he's taking us to a place of rest in eternity. Until then, uh, we may have some work to do, even when he promises us nap time. There may be some hiccups along the way. When that happens, he wants to work his power through our inadequacy, through our emptiness, so that we might be a blessing to the ends of the earth. Are you willing for him to take up your emptiness? Use your weakness to bless others. He wants to reveal his glory to this church. The question is, do we understand? Are our hearts softened by his spirit to see him as he is in all his glory? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that you have brought him into this world so that we could understand fully who you are, that you were coming in the person of your son to take on flesh with us, to, to live the human experience, and ultimately to give yourself up upon the cross to be our sacrifice that we so desperately needed, to rise again from the dead so that we too might rise. We are thankful that Jesus is our shepherd God who leads us in this wilderness world, instructing us all along the way. You take our inadequacy and you multiply it uh, beyond anything that we could do on our own so that we might bless, uh, be a blessing to the nations through the gospel. Father, we want to see Jesus in all his glory as the great I am. We pray that we would not be like the disciples who don't have eyes to see what you're doing among us, what you're seeking to reveal to us, but that our hearts would be always softened to perceive the ways that he is revealing himself to us through your word, through our lives, through what you're doing in our world. Give us eyes to see. We love you. We're thankful that he is our king of love and our shepherd. We pray these things in his name. Amen.